Good evening. Welcome to our uh, Wednesday night uh, service as we gather together to worship God again and to dive into his word halfway through our week. Um, It's a wonderful thing that we can come together and do that, so we're glad that you're all here. I want to uh, invite you to sing praises to God this evening. In fact, I encourage you to praise, sing praises to our King, for God is the King of the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm, which we'll be doing from Psalm 103 in a few minutes. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. That's why we're here, to worship the God that sits on the throne and is in control. Let's stand together and worship him.
In your presence, all our fears are washed away. Because when we see you, we find strength to face the day. In your presence, all our fears are washed away. Oh, washed away, Hosea. Sing your praise unending. 
grave could not ignore it. All of heaven's roaring, hell, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The world could not ignore it. When all the saints are roaring, hell, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The grave could not ignore it. All of heaven's roaring, hell, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The world could not ignore it. When all the saints are roaring, hell, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Praise the King. He is risen. Praise the King. He's alive. Praise the King. Death's defeated. Hallelujah. He's alive. Praise the King. Praise the King. He is risen. Praise the King. He's alive. Praise the King. Death's defeated. Hallelujah. He's alive. Hallelujah. He's alive. Hallelujah. He's alive. Oh. Hallelujah, He's alive. That psalm I started with talked about singing to the King, which we've done. We've sung about who He is, what He's done for us. Now I invite you, that second part of that passage that I read talked about God being on the throne. I invite you during these next two songs to allow yourself to pull, to go in front of the throne of God this evening and worship Him face to face. Indescribable, uncontainable, you place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing God. All power Untamable, awestruck we fall to our knees as we humbly proclaim You are amazing God You are amazing Uncontainable, you place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. Incomparable, unchanging. 
tangible. You see the depths of my heart, and you love me the same. You are amazing, God. You are amazing, God. You are amazing,
thank you that you invite us right into your throne room. We don't have to stand out by the door and knock, but you have invited us to come. We do come humbly because you are a holy God. You are majestic. You are amazing and awesome. But at the same time, we know that we are your children. And just like any father, you love it when the children just come running in. So we're here before your throne this evening. Jumping up on your lap and saying, Oh God, Father. Holy God, we love you. We thank you. We thank you that Jesus went to the cross so that we could be with Christ, in Christ with God. And that we would have your permission to have that personal one-on-one relationship with you. So we worship you. We bow at your footstool and sing holy, 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 Lord God, almighty. Amen. Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, as we continue our study through the whole of God's Word, and taking a look tonight at uh, Luke 19. We have about four more studies in Luke, and then we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians. And uh, having covered some of the Gospels already, Matthew on Sunday mornings, and we've done Mark um, we're going to jump right in and, and take a look at 1 Corinthians after this. And, and I'm really excited about being able to get there. I'm also excited about Sunday study. We're, on Sunday, we're going to be in Matthew 24, 
beginning a four-part series on what's called the Olivet Discourse. So if you're into end times and eschatology, this is going to be something that, especially over the next four weeks, um, that we're going to be taking a look at on Sunday morning, and I want to encourage you to read ahead and, and, and study up. There's some really good stuff that's in there. It would be super cool if Jesus came back before we finished it, though, wouldn't it? That'd be great. Also, I, I'm really excited. I, God's doing some amazing things, in, um, especially in our men's ministry. I can brag on these guys. We have a men's retreat here in a couple weeks. It's actually a week from Friday. And we started out this journey prepping for it in October. Uh, and we, we booked our speaker, Jim Ramos, uh, for Men in the Arena. He wrote a book called Strong Men, Dangerous Times. And I didn't really understand what the Lord was going to do. We thought, okay, well, we'll do this book. We'll get the speaker. We'll get going. And so we ordered, you know, by faith, 50 books that went through that. Well, we just sent out our 75th book. Had to order 15 more, and we got a bunch of guys signed up. So if you haven't signed up already, please get signed up so that we can make sure that we can accommodate. We really don't have a limit on the men's retreat, but we can put 42 inside the, the halls, and then we can put some guys in the cabins that are next to it, and that's a week from Friday. So I want to encourage you to, and if, if you can't go on the retreat, get the book and read through the book. I mean, God's doing some radical things there, so we want to encourage you for that. But tonight we're going to be in Luke 19. And as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, we last left him on the road approaching Jericho. Uh, and he had encountered blind Bartimaeus, and he's been doing some miracles. He's getting ready to be able to make his triumphal entry and coming in and doing this. This is Jesus' last, really, ministry in the field, if you will. He's, he's going to be moving into Jerusalem and, and doing some work there. He's not quite there yet. He's been doing some great ministry, though. And the focus of Jesus' ministry is to reach the marginalized, the least and the lost and the marginalized. He's been healing lepers and, and casting out demons, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, and fulfilling that calling. Luke four eighteen really started it off in this mission statement. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery to the sight to the blind to free those who were oppressed. And at the end of verse 10 of chapter 19, we're also going to see him restate that mission statement. So he started with it, and now he's kind of in, in what's called an occlusio or bracketing. In verse 10, he says this, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And I love the fact that that's what Jesus does is he comes to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come to fix those that thought they had it all together. He came to fix the broken ones. Then he, and and I don't, I'm broken. And, and I know in talking with a lot of you guys, we, we live in a sense of brokenness. And where Jesus comes and, and he presents himself and he finds us, but then there's this, this human responsibility to respond rightly to him when he reveals himself, to really come to him and to reach out to him. And that's what we're going to see in our first section here. This guy named Zacchaeus. And if you ever taught Sunday school, there's a song. Zacchaeus was a what? Wee little man. And a wee little man was he. And he climbed up a sycamore tree because the Lord he wanted to see. We actually had somebody on our last Israel trip. I think it was Trudy, wasn't it, that went up and Beth, and they found the sycamore tree. Out by the sea, uh, off the Sea of Galilee, we got pictures of them climbing up in this tree. They didn't see Jesus. Although if they would have fell from where they were, they probably would have. 
But but in this, we see that uh, we start with this account. So in 19 verses 1 through 10, it says, As he entered into Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature, or we would say in this PC world, vertically challenged. And so he ran on ahead and climbed up the sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through the way. Jesus came to the place, and he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay in your house. And he hurried and he came down and received him gladly. And when they saw, they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. It's a powerful passage And it's something that is true here only in Luke's account, whereas Jesus is passing through. And if you remember it from our trips to Jericho, it's down across the valley full of palm, date palms that's all in that area. And then you would come out of Jericho and you would make the the trek going up through the wilderness, kind of the wildernessy area, into Jerusalem. And as the text tells us, as Jesus was going in, notice in verse 1 where it says that he was passing through. It was not intentional, at least to the people that were in here, that Jesus was actually going to stop and stay in Jericho. He had a divine appointment to get to Jerusalem, to be able to be there, to start his ministry there, which would encompass a number of different things and teachings and, and so on and so forth with this. He has just left off blind Bartimaeus and he comes in this guy named Zacchaeus who the text tells us is a chief tax collector and a rich man, and he wanted to see Jesus. So this is not some ordinary tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. And you say, well, why is that a big deal? Well, you've got to understand, tax collectors were not well thought of in the Jewish culture, were they? They were thought of as scoundrels and cheats, and they were thought of in a negative light because these tax collectors got their income as they worked on behalf of Rome to collect the toll tax or the poll tax, and the road coming out of Jericho that separated Perea and Judea was a main road. So what do you do? Well, you put a toll on a main road. I think they're trying to do that on a highway out here. It's the only way you got to go, and so they're going to try to cut you off, and you're going to pay the tax. Well, uh, Rome says, look it, we want ours, and so... After we get ours, then you can get your income by whatever you do over and above this set amount. Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector, and the text says that he was what? Rich. Which means he was what? A thief. Because he was overtaxing the people. And everybody knew it. How do we know everybody knew it? Because they said, what is he doing going and eating with this sinner? Because if you were a tax collector, there were a couple of classes of people. One was a leper, and then the other one was a tax collector. They were all thought to be sinners. And so within this, it was not a good place for him to be. 
Um, yet he is there, and, and he wasn't well-liked, and the text says that, interesting enough, that he was short, vertically challenged. He couldn't see over the crowd. Now, what it doesn't tell us is what Zacchaeus knew about Jesus. It doesn't tell us what drove him to want to see Jesus. Other than the fact, it's implied later in verse 9, he was tired of his old life and he wanted salvation. Because Jesus notes that. It's interesting that he didn't allow barriers to stop him. There are times in our lives when we have natural barriers that keep us from being able to accomplish a goal, to do whatever we got to do. But he was so driven, i got to see this teacher, this rabbi, this one that's doing the healing of people and, and raising the dead. i got to see who he is that's forgiving sins. As the chief tax collector, do you think that he knew he was a sinner? He did. Living in a town that everybody hated him? For sure. And in this condition, he was looking for redemption. He was looking for forgiveness. He was looking for something that was going to help him. He wanted salvation. And so what does he do? He runs. In the Near Eastern culture, it was not dignified for men to run. He runs. And not only does he run, but he climbs up a tree. So this guy, he takes his robe and... I don't know if he, he wrapped it up or he did what he got to do, but he runs, gets ahead of the crowd and, because Jesus was passing by. And then we see this, this desire. He really wanted to see Jesus. I think he really wanted to know who his hope might be. He really wanted to be saved. Years ago, when I used to do ministry down in Mexico, I went down to I went down to Ensenada, and then if you go down to past Ensenada, there was a little village called Maniadero. Maniadero is just a little farm village, and it, they have cucumber farms and all these different places that are all in there. And so the people would they they would live in these large, long metal buildings, and. It, it was super hot. And so they would live outside and they'd take plastic and sticks and cardboards and try to make little patios and these kinds of things. We were down there doing some ministry and, and they said, well, we want to go show the Jesus film in this cucumber farm that's down there. And it was in Spanish. And, and so we went down and I had taken some of the kids and a Nazarene pastor that was there. And we went down to this thing. We put up a bed sheet and got the film, you know, with the, the reel-to-reel projector. Yeah, this is Mexico, right? Yeah, and so all the people came in and they went into this thing and they showed the Jesus film and, they, and then it was my job to present the gospel at the end. The pastor asked me to do it. So I'm, I'm sharing the gospel. Now, mind you, the people that are working in this farm are what's called Awakan Indians. So the Awakans in Mexico are considered half-breeds. They're, they're, they're Mexican and they're Indian and they weren't thought well of. If you've ever gone into Baja, Mexico, and they have the, the, the ladies that are on the corner with the kids, and they sell the little gum packs, chiclets, they're Awakens. And so they're not, they weren't well thought of. And, and they would travel a great distance to be able to get help. Talking with his Nazarene pastor, he said that these people would travel all day to be able to get to church. And they would walk. 
So anyway, we share the, I shared the, the message through the translator, and I asked if anybody wants to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, forgiveness of their sins. One person stood up. I'm sharing the gospel, and, and, and then I'm leading him in this prayer, and halfway through the prayer, he stops and speaks in Spanish to the crowd behind him, which is probably only about 50 people. And then turns around and nods his head, and then we continue. I asked the Nazarene pastor afterwards, I said, what, what did he say? I mean, I know a little Spanish, but not enough. And he says, he turned and he looked at me and he says, what I do is not a shameful thing. And I said, well, why would he say that? He says, because he's now going to be removed from his family. Because in the culture, to become a, a Christian, to, to step away from Catholicism, especially in that culture, the family would no longer have anything to do with him. But he didn't allow that barrier to stop him from coming to faith and trusting in Jesus. In Jeremiah 29, 13, it says, You will seek me and find me when you search for me, note, with all your heart. And I thought about this with Zacchaeus. How many times do we find excuses not to come see Jesus? Well, I woke up late. Well, I'm tired for being up too late last night. I can't seem to get my devotion because I, you know, I just like to sleep in or whatever the case may be. Here is a guy who just, I've got to see him. Because he's my only hope of having a new life. As Jesus is passing by, something crazy happens. He comes by and he looks up into this tree, which was probably quite a sight. As he's, as he's coming by, he looks up into this tree and he sees this man there. And notice what it says, Zacchaeus, in verse 5. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. How did Jesus know his name? And originally he was planning on passing through, but he says, today I'm staying in your house. Why? Because today, Zacchaeus, is your day of salvation. This was a divine appointment. He was set aside to be able to meet him, much like Nathaniel. In John chapter 1, verses 47 48, says this, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. So Jesus said, Nathaniel, you're an okay guy. And Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus knows your name. When did he know your name? Before the foundations of the earth. When did he see you to be a child of God? Before the foundations of the earth. Did Zacchaeus know that that was his day of salvation? Nope. Jesus did. Did Zacchaeus exert human effort? Yes. But Jesus met him in the condition that he was in, up a tree. And notice what he says to him, the first word of promise. Today, I'm going to be in your house. He doesn't say, today you're saved. He says, today I'm going to be in your house. Why? 
Because Zacchaeus' awareness of salvation needed to be tested. It needed to be brought out. It needed to be nurtured out. It was going to be an experience, a process. As, they get, as he gets down, he says, today I'm going to go in your house. Another roadblock, another adversity that Zacchaeus had to overcome was what the people thought. He comes down and what do the people say? This guy, he's going to go eat with a sinner. And you know they said it loud enough to be able to be heard. How do we know that? Because of Zacchaeus' response. As they say, today he's going to go eat with a sinner, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus stops and says, they're right. They're right. And he makes this, this overt commitment as according to Jewish law and culture. He said, but Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. Why? Because benevolence is a mark of repentance. Benevolence is a re mark of repentance. He's been all about himself, self-interest and self-indulgence. And he says, up to half of my his riches by defrauding people. And so he was giving away these things as was a mark of repentance within this, this, this commitment back to be able to give back fourfold. In Jewish culture, benevolence is a thank offering. When we have communion once a month here, following communion, we take up a benevolent offering. Why? Because we're thankful for the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. It's intentional. When we celebrate communion, we remember what Jesus has done for us, and then we can demonstrate that love towards other people and, and give to that, that fund that helps meet needs. In fact, we, we just paid for a hot water heater to go into the house of a widow out of that fund. Why? Because you all are thankful for what God has done, and you fund it. It is a great thing. As to the giving back according to the law, Numbers chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 says this, Speak to the sons of Israel, when a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he will confess his sins which he has committed, and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong, and add to it one-fifth of it, or 20%, and give it to him who he is wrong. And he says, I'm going to give four times, over and above. Did Zacchaeus really know what it means to, to commit his life to the Lord in some churchy or, or kind of unique way? No, all he knew was what the Old Testament law said. And he responded by what he knew. What he knew to be true as a, as a commitment of saying, I've wronged people, I've and I'm confessing my wrong, and I'm going to make it right through restitution. And how does Jesus respond? Notice it's the second today. The first today was, I'm going to meet with you in your house. The second today is, salvation has come to this house. Why? Because he's the son of Abraham, or he's part of the Abrahamic covenant. What was part of the Abrahamic covenant? It was by faith, Abraham had done all of these things. Abraham didn't know what to do, but he did 
what he did by faith. By faith, he offered offering to Melchizedek. By faith, he went with his wife Sarah and they had a child. It's by faith that he lives. And so Zacchaeus, by faith, ran ahead, climbed up a tree, saw Jesus. And by faith, he accepted that invitation that Jesus invited himself. Zacchaeus didn't invite him. Jesus invited himself. Which makes me think of Revelations. I stand at the door and knock. And if any man opens that door, I'll come in. We think about that. Jesus invites himself to your life. And the lost Zacchaeus is found. And within this, he is, he is this example of something that Jesus spoke about earlier. Do you remember the account we studied a few weeks ago about the rich young ruler? And he came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit salvation? He says, obey all the horizontal laws and how he treats other people, right? And then he says, go and what? Sell all you have and... Follow me. And he went away sad because he was what? Rich. Can a rich man be saved? The answer is what? Yes. When you let go of those riches. And it fulfills even in this, this idea of, of really seeking after and fulfilling this mission. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. Fulfills Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34.16 says this, I will seek the last and bring back the scattered and bind up the broken, strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy and I will feed them with judgment. Wow. What did you say? I'm going to seek and save the lost, but the ones that are fat and happy and sassy, they're going to be destroyed. And, Zach, and Zacchaeus is, is kind of the last bit of that group as Jesus is getting ready to, to die on the cross, but also pronounce judgment. Having had this encounter with Zacchaeus, Jesus never misses an opportunity to teach. You ever notice that? Like he does something that's amazing and a miracle or something like that, and then he turns to his disciples and he says, now i got a lesson for you, which is the parable of what's called the parable of the mina. In Luke chapter 19, verses 11, all the way to 27, we see while these were listening to the, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So before I read the parable, I want to shape the context. He, he, Zacchaeus is done. They have all the, the encounters. He's, get, he's back on the road. He's going up to Jerusalem, getting close, but the crowd is thinking... Wow, this guy really is the Messiah. He is really the one that is going to come and do justice. He's going to go in, he's going to establish his kingdom, and he's going to kick Rome out. Kingdom is going to be happening. We're awake, a week away from the kingdom being established. And Jesus needs to teach a parable about stewardship. Because the kingdom is not coming as fast as you think it is. So he goes on to tell the parable in verse 12. He says, And a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. In your mind, you're probably already starting to figure out who's who. And when he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him, so that he might know what the business they had done. And the first appeared, saying, Master, your mina 
has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in very little things, you are to be authority over ten cities. The second came to him, saying, Your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. And another came to him, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept and put, in, put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you are an exacting man, and you take up what you did not lay down, and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, By your own words, I will judge you. You worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank and have come and I would have collected it with interest? And then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him. Give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he's got ten minas already. And Jesus says, I tell you that everyone who has more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Wow. So we have this picture about stewardship that's given to us. But also we have a picture about sovereignty and accountability and rejection and rewards, all mixed into this parable that is, that is here. It speaks of the nobleman who goes off to become a king, to receive that kingdom. Gone for a while, he leaves his assets with his slaves as a nobleman, but will come back and hold the slaves to account about what he has done. And within this, we see this, this backdrop of the crowd that's expecting the kingdom to be established right now. And the kingdom's not going to come, as I said, as fast as they thought it would. So the king goes out, and it's very similar to the parable of the talents. If you read in Matthew, and you can do it later, Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, very similar to the parable of the talents, where talents are given by the, by the master, and then he comes back. It's all about a master going off and leaving in charge servants and then coming back and holding those servants' account. What do we have in common? Well, the servants don't own the kingdom, do they? They're stewards of it. But it's not theirs. They're managers alone. And they will be held to account to this. The, the other thing is this, while that person's gone, they're expected to, with the stewardship of the possession, to multiply it. He says, I'm leaving you this, but I want it to work. I want, I want you to produce. I want it to reproduce with that. Why? Because he, he wants to come back and, and know that they were faithful. In this account, the nobleman is not a king yet, but he leaves and is given that authority as king and then comes back as king. Well, that's Jesus, who is the Son of God, who will be leaving at his death, burial, resurrection, but ascension when he leaves. And when Jesus the King returns for his millennial kingdom, he's going to expect answers. What did you do with this? It's interesting that in this day, 
Jesus is using history to be able to teach this. Why? Because in 4 BC, Herod the Great was a nobleman, but he wasn't really king yet until he went to Rome. And in 4 BC, he went to Rome to actually receive the title of king over Judea and Perea within that land. His son, um, Archelaus, I'm sorry, Herod the Great in 40 BC, Archelaus would become the same way king in 4 BC. So Herod the Great in 40 BC had to go to Rome, receive his authority, come back. In 4 BC, his son would also do the same thing and come back and, and rule within this. What else do we see in this parable? Well, not only was the nobleman noble, but went away, received authority and come back, but in his absence, he distributes one mina to ten slaves and gives them all the same instructions. Do business. Do business while I'm gone. And it implies that when I return, you're going to give an account. When Jesus ascended, prior to his ascension, he gave a command, didn't he? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go unto all the earth and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In this parable also, there's this group that rejects the authority. Now, who do you think is the group that rejects the authority of the nobleman? It would be the Jews. The Jews rejected the authority of Jesus. They, did, they said, we don't want this man to be king over us, right? And so they rejected him. And so all of this is a picture of Jesus' ascension. And the interim period in between the ascension and what's called the parousia, or the second coming of Jesus. It's that gap in that period, that's time, and they have to give the account. Well, when the king comes back, he goes to this first servant. The first servant says, here is your one minor, but I multiplied it and got ten out of one. Well, that's pretty good. He increased it. That's, that's a good job. He says, okay, you were faithful with the little... You had a mina. Well, what was a mina? A mina was worth about three months' salary, about 100 days' salary. It wasn't much, but he multiplied it. And he says, you, multi you took something small and you multiplied it. So, therefore, you're trustworthy to rule over ten cities. Well, how does he have the authority to do that? Because now he's king. And these are his cities. And he can distribute that authority. So he made the good servant a ruler that would rule alongside him over the ten cities. And if you're one that's into eschatology, you're starting to think a little bit, aren't you? And he says the same thing for the second one who says, well, you know, I got your one mina and it turned into five. And he said, good, now you're five. What do we see? We see the reward proportionate to the stewardship, Right? And it doesn't matter if it's ten or five, but they were rewarded proportionate to the stewardship. But then we saw the other guy, the third guy, and he only mentions three out of the ten, but the third guy, and the, the, the look is this, the third guy comes and he says, here's your one, I didn't lose it. I kept it in a handkerchief. I didn't invest it because I was scared of you. You're stern, and you work hard. And I didn't want to lose what you work hard for. It was an excuse. 
It was an excuse for not working. It was an excuse for laziness. He was judged because he was a poor steward. In fact, the servant describes this, man, this king as a hard man, and he describes him in a negative light. You're a harsh man. You're a harsh taskmaster. Is he? Implies you're not fair. Really? What did he do with the other guys? You just didn't want to work. You didn't want to, you didn't, you didn't want to move it forward. You didn't do anything with it. And so then the king says this. By your own words, or by your own presupposition of who I am, which I'm really not, I'm going to judge you from that position. You think I'm harsh? Okay, I'll be harsh. You think I'm, I'm not fair? Well, I'm going to judge you from that position. The excuse is, if you, what you say is true, and it's not, but if you do... And you should, then you should have put the money to the bank, right? If you knew I was that hard, why didn't you at least put it into the bank? There's no risk there. You just got interest. There's no investment. You're not trying to buy Bitcoin or something. It's just, you should have been smart. But because you were lazy, you're going to lose. And I got to thinking about this investment of stewardship. Every single Christ follower during this period of time from Jesus' ascension to Jesus' second coming has been given a mina. You, know, you want to know what your mina is? Your one thing? The one thing everybody has, every Christ follower, every servant of Jesus Christ, you all have one thing and it's the same thing. You know, want to know what it is? The gospel. The gospel. You've all been given it. You have that one thing. Jesus said, go to his disciples and what? Make disciples. Multiply. Make disciples. Take the gospel and make disciples. Make learners. If you were to do the math, and I'm not a big math guy, but if you were to do the math and you were to work out multiplication, so if, one, if week one you lead one person to the Lord, right? And then week two, you lead another person to the Lord. But the person you lead to the Lord now leads another person to the Lord. And the next person leads another person to the Lord. You ever see what happens with rabbits? Multiplies. If you, if you said, Lord, this week I'm going to share the gospel with one person. Today I'm going to share the gospel with one person. Those that sow sparingly will reap sparingly. Those that sow abundantly will reap abundantly. Is Jesus going to judge us with what we do with the gospel? The answer is what? Yes. Absolutely yes. You have one job. Share the gospel. You have one job. Go and make disciples. To go and to share it. You say, well, that's not my job, Carrie. That's why you're the pastor. That's why you get paid. No. <laughs> my job is the same as your job. To go and make disciples. To go and do it. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. To be able to do that work. To go where? To the least, to the lost, to the marginalized. To go find the guy that's hanging out in a tree. And share the gospel with him.
It might be. So he loses his mina, and then he tells him, take him, and, and he gets, and, and he, he, he loses it. And they say, well, give it to the guy with ten, and, and it's as if it wasn't fair. And then he says this, and the guys that were rebellious against me, that rejected me from the, from the get-go, bring them here. When is this going to take place? Well, we, we, we know we're going to have to give an account when we get to heaven of that which we've done. We know in the millennial reign that, that Israel is, and, and Jews that were rejecting Jesus are going to be done. But I think this judgment that he talks about, this destruction, is two-part. The first part is in 70 A.D. when the temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is burnt to the ground, and all of that. But I think the second judgment where those that are cast out is going to be the great white throne judgment. Everybody that rejects within that. It really is about stewardship. Everyone is given the equal opportunity to share the gospel and everybody is going to be held in account for that. I encourage you to take what God has given to you and watch it multiply. Share the gospel and watch people get saved. Because the king has left for a period of time and when he comes back, he's going to want to know what we did with that, that gospel message. As he approaches Israel, or as he approaches Jerusalem, he's coming into town, which gives us what's called the Palm Sunday or the triumphal entrance. Now, we studied this not too long ago, and, and we're going to kind of go through it again because there's some really cool stuff that I want to bring out that I don't normally get to bring out on a Sunday morning. He says this in verses 28 to 44. It says, after he had said these things, he, wasn't, uh, he was going on ahead and going up to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called the Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and there you'll enter and you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, and untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. And so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, uh, its owner said to them, Why are you untying it? They said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. And as he was approaching near in the descent of the Mount Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice, with all the miracles that they had seen, shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said, I tell you that if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now you have been, they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up barricades against you and surround you. And hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So we have this Palm Sunday, and if you've been in the church for any length of time, you know that Palm Sunday is the time when Jesus came in. So you've got to imagine, Jesus has come up this Jericho road, and he breaks over the top, Bethphage is over to the right, and it's called the House of Unripe Figs. And then you've got uh, 
Bethany that's over to the left. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in Bethany. And that's where Jesus hung out. That's where he stayed. He didn't stay in Jerusalem. Now, mind you, the Passover is happening this week. That whole hillside would have been full of pilgrims setting up camps. It was a huge, huge olive grove. And fig trees would have been over to the uh, north side of, of the Mount of Olives. And within this, we see Jesus coming in over this Mount of Olives. And, and the Mount of Olives isn't really a mountain. Israel likes to brag about things that aren't really all that big. It's a hill. It's just under 3,000 foot in elevation. And you would have come down onto the other side, and you would look at the other mount, Mount Zion, which is at about 3,000. It's higher than the Mount of Olives. So they sit off canter a little bit. So Mount of Olives is lower. Mount Zion is higher. And that is where the Temple Mount sits. As you come over the top of it, you would see uh, that across from the Mount of Olives would be a gate called the Eastern Gate, also known as the Golden Gate. And in the middle draw is the Kidron Valley. It's only about three miles across. When we go to Israel, we sit on the Mount of Olives and we look across and you can hear what's going on there. When you're looking across the Kidron Valley and you're, you're seeing down across the draw, you're looking at the platform that the temple used to sit on. And there would be a series of gates. The one that you would look at is a closed off gate today. It's called the East Gate. And there are two arches that are right there. And again, if you've been to Israel, you're pic you should be picturing it in your mind about now. You say, well, Carrie, why is it closed off? When Jesus came through, down the Palm Sunday Road, down across the Kidron Valley, he would have come up through the East Gate or the Golden Gate. When you stand on top of the platform where the Temple Mount stood, and you look at the Mount of Olives, it's a direct line through steps that go through the East Gate and go up to the Mount of Olives. It was the common way for everybody to come through. They bricked it up. And then they put on the other side, on the outside, a graveyard. Why? Because the Messiah, Jesus, came through that gate, and they said, we don't want to take a chance of him, the Messiah, coming through this gate again, according to prophecy. So the Arabs had gone through, and then they had put a graveyard there, and then they put it bricked up because this will surely stop the Messiah from coming through. No self-respecting Messiah will walk through a graveyard. And we know that a bricked-up gate, a bricked-up set of arches, is going to keep him out of the city. You think that's going to work? No, I don't think so. One, the graveyard's not going to stop him. And two, the wall's not going to stop him. And, so, and it's funny, because when you go into Israel today, guess what they have on the inside of that wall? Two Arab guards that are sitting there guarding that gate. Why? Because they don't want anybody walking down there and start pulling the bricks out. When we walk on the Temple Mount, it's, it's craziness. They say, we really don't believe in the Messiah. Well, if you really didn't believe, then why are you going to such lengths to keep him from coming back? crazy to me. But they do that. As Jesus breaks the top, he goes in and he says to the disciples, go across the way there and you'll find a colt and a foal. That would be an unridden, 
donkey and, and the mother, and they're there, and then you go and start untying it. And if anyone asks, and the text really applies, if anyone asks, and they will, just tell them that the Lord has need of it. Now, I know there's a lot of catalytic converters that are being stolen. If someone came and knocked on your door and said, can I have your cat converter off of your rig? You would probably say what? No. But the Lord has need of it. Which Lord are you serving? Because it's not the one I serve. I need the keys to your car. The Lord has need of it. No. So there's two schools of thought. Both of them are equal. One school of thought is that Jesus had set this up ahead of time. Because there's no way that somebody is going to let their animals go off with a stranger. Unless it was divine privilege that Jesus had set up miraculously. Could be true. The other one is... The owners were disciples, and Jesus had already set it up and said, you know, at some point in time, I'm going to come and I'm going to need those. When they get there, I'll send my disciples. Either one could be true. I wouldn't hang my hat on either one. I, I, there's good Bible scholars that believe in either side. But, you know, the fun side of me really wants to believe the fact that the guy didn't know what was going on. And, and Jesus was just exercising divine authority. But he was doing so to fulfill Zechariah 9.9. That says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed in salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt and a foal of a donkey. Why? Because Zechariah was a prophecy that says, When the Messiah comes, he will come on an unridden donkey. I have played donkey basketball for a number of years. Donkeys are not easy to ride. They got this pointed back, they hurt, and they, got, they are headstrong, let alone ride one that has never been read. So even that in itself is a miracle, but it would have been a marker for the Jews to see him and go, yes, that is why they sung out, Hosanna, blessed is he, because it was the prophecy being fulfilled. The next time that Jesus comes back, it won't be on a donkey, it'll be on a horse. Revelation 19.11 And I saw heavens open, and behold, a white horse, and he sat upon it, faithful and true, righteous, and he judges and wages war. What's the difference? Jewish kings would come in on a colt and a donkey because it meant peace. But when they would come back on a white horse, it meant that they were victorious. And he would come back in that manner. I want to take a sidetrack, though, because we don't normally get to do something like this. Why this day? Why this specific day? If you have your Bibles, turn them over to Daniel chapter 9, verses 34 to 37. There was a specific day that Jesus had to come into Jerusalem in order to fulfill prophecy. Have you ever heard of the 70 weeks of Daniel? Biblical prophecy, it was a timeline that would begin at a certain time and it would usher in two Palm Sunday and then it would usher in, based on a timeline, the end of the age. The Bible is completely accurate. You can't debate it. It's historically accurate. It's literally correct. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. 
We're not going to do a super deep dive, but I want to do it from the standpoint of dates. So 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. Notice, to finish the transgression. 70 weeks to finish the transgression. What is the transgression? It's the rebellion. It's the rejection of the Messiah. It's Israel's sin. To make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision, the prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from note, the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks, 62 weeks, which equals 69, and it will be built again. And the plaza and the moat and even times in distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city, prince being Satan, and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations determined. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. So now we're at 70 weeks. But in the middle of this week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offering, three and a half years in. And on the wing of the abominations will, one, will come one who makes desolate, even until the complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. The 70 weeks of Daniel gives us a start date of a time clock. That time clock has a start date, and then it has a pause date. And then it has a restart date. And you say, well, what is that? Well, there's three groups of seven that are mentioned in Daniel. There's a seven, a 62, and a seven. Right? Or a one, a 62, and then, and, and then a one. When we get into this. So we look at all of this really as 70 weeks or 70 periods of seven. 70 weeks. Right? So when we take a look at this and, and these weeks being equal to years. Within this, the first two groups are the seven sevens plus sixty two sevens. So you have seven sevens and sixty two sevens will continue in, until the anointed one comes. That's why we know the date that Jesus would come in. Now, Bible scholars will argue of when the start date and when the Palm Sunday date is, but we know what it is. We can trace it back in history starting from that point in time. We know that the beginning of the timeline was from the decree of Artaxerxes I. And it was a decree that he gave to Nehemiah. The date is March 5th, 444 B.C. That was the beginning of the first seven sevens. And that was for the rebuilding of the temple. He says this in Nehemiah uh, chapter 2, verse 5, he said, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my fathers, and tombs, that I may rebuild it. That's the start line. Right? So that's go. March 5th, 444 B.C. is the go line. Then a total of 69 weeks, or 69 sevens, would pass during that period of time. And that would take us up to the date of March 5th, I'm sorry, um, March 30th in 33 A.D. Or if you counted the days, it's 173,880 days. And you can do the math. How does it get us there? There are two calendars 
that you can work through. One is the Jewish calendar that starts and takes you all the way through. The other one is called the Gregorian calendar. The Gregorian calendar is something that we're used to using, and it calendars on a 365-day year. It also takes into the accomplishment of leap years and so on that brings you all the way through it. But the number of days is actually the same. And when you calculate it, either the Jewish calendar or the Gregorian calendar, they all land on that March 30th, 33 A.D., which would be Palm Sunday to that day. Now, you look at it and you go, well, wait a minute. There's one seven left. What does that mean? That means we have seven years left in order to accomplish the 70 years of Daniel. Well, when does that start? What's going to happen there? Well, when does it start? I don't know. Don't know. Because we're in a gap from March 30th in 33 A.D., and ongoing, we're in a gap called the church age. Because at that point in time, in March 30th, 33 AD, Jesus came as King Messiah and was rejected. Hence, the desolation and the judgment of the land. And he was cut off from the land as Messiah. Jesus was cut off. Remember the parable of the mina. The nobleman comes in. And the noble then goes away for a period of time and then comes back. This is called the church age. It's an undetermined amount of time. Many people call it the age of grace. Where Jesus and the Holy Spirit have stopped working with Jerusalem and Israel. I'm sorry, with Israel and the Jews. And has turned his attention to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. But the Jews are still God's chosen people. And remember in Daniel's prophecy, he says it was for the determination of the, the desolation for their rebellion. Which means that there's a one week or seven year period where God still has to judge them for their rebellion. So in this gap period, this gap period of grace, we have many people coming to faith while the king is gone. Within this, it's a timeline that's between the first advent and the second advent. Now, depending on your eschatology, you notice that there was, in Daniel's, it talks about a seven-year period, but three and a half years into it, or midway, is called the abomination that makes desolate. Well, what is that? If you were to take a look and compare it to, and we're not going to get into it tonight because I don't have the time, but we will get to it, I promise. If you were to mark and take a look at the book of Revelation and read the book of Revelation as a chronological timeline, because that's how it's been written. Chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Revelation is the church age. The seven churches of Revelation, that's the church age. Between 3 and 4, something happens where people are gathered before the throne room of God. Chapters 4 and 5, you're in the presence of the throne room of God. Worship is taking place, crowns are being cast, and so on and so forth. There is a single timeline that happens that we're on. But chapter 3 has a break in that timeline. Chapters 4 and 5, I believe, and, I, and, I, and this is called a, 
a pre-tribulation rapture position. The church is raptured and taken up in chapters 4 and 5, while the remaining people are left on earth. Chapters 6 through 19, the great tribulation period. At the end of 19, when Jesus comes back on the white horse, as we read, after the marriage supper of the Lamb, he returns with the saints that are in heaven, back to earth, and judges the earth as king. Second advent within this. That's the second time he comes down. In the rapture, he doesn't come down, but we meet him in the air. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 to 14. So we look at that. That's the rapture, what's called the rapture, and that's a pre-tribulation rapture. Why? God hasn't appointed us unto wrath. Now, in chapter 6 of Revelation, and I know I'm throwing a lot at you, you'll find four horsemen. The first horseman comes in with a bow, no arrows, conquering, not conquering. He comes in peace. The first three and a half years of the tribulation is peace. But then, three and a half years in, he, he creates what's called the abomination of desolation. The temple will be rebuilt by this time, and the Antichrist will stand in the middle of the temple and say, Worship me as God. Creates the abomination of desolation. We'll be talking about it in the, in, in the coming weeks in the Olivet Discourse. That's why I'm not getting into depth. That is the second half. So from Revelation chapter 6, about verse 2... All the way 19 is the last three and a half years where the scrolls and the bowl judgments and the trumpet judgments all roll out continuously until the end judgment. Then comes the, the end judgment where Jesus comes back. Back to Palm Sunday. That's the end of the Jewish time clock. And now we're in the Gentiles. And you're going, oh my goodness, Carrie, what are you talking about? Read Revelation. Go back and read Daniel. And we'll be talking about it in coming weeks on Sunday morning. So be here on Sunday. Back into Palm Sunday. What are the people doing at this time? Verse 35. They are worshiping him as king. They're laying out their cloaks. They're honoring him. They're saying, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the process, Jesus is coming down that hill, verses 41 to 44, and he laments. He gets into this place where he's grieving. Imagine the mixed emotions that's going on. The crowd is excited, and Jesus is weeping. Why? Because he's looking past this fake worship, and he sees the desolation that's going to come in 70 A.D. He sees at the end of the week this very crowd that says, Hosanna, blessed is he. Come Friday, they're going to say, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be upon us. And it breaks Jesus' heart. As Jesus comes down from the temple, as we had studied before, he comes down and he looks at the, inside the temple, sees what's going on, goes back to Bethany, then comes back the next day on Monday. In verses 45 to 48, Jesus enters the temple, began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a robber's den. And then he was teaching daily in the temple, so he continued ministry, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him, and they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. 
So we take a look at this and we see what's going on. And then if we match it up to our Sunday morning study, we are now together. Whereas on Sunday, we're going to be picking up on the Olivet Discourse where Jesus leaves midweek of his Passion Week. He takes his disciples to the Mount of Olives and now he's going to unpack for them in the Olivet Discourse end times, eschatology. All of this fit together. Why? So that we would learn. So that we would know. So that we can't go to God and say, God, I didn't know. You do. And when it comes down to it, don't worry about the end times. Don't worry about when, when things are going to get bad. Because they're going to get bad. Sorry. They're going to get bad. It's going to get worse. Don't worry if God's going to take care of you because He will. God hasn't appointed you unto wrath. Don't worry about when is He going to come and take you home. Because He can come take you home any day, so just be ready every day. Leave your bags packed and everything done. No unfinished business. Leave them on the porch and you're good to go. Then what should I worry about? Stewardship. Stewardship. Because remember, the king came back and he said, what did you do with the responsibility that I gave to you? That's what we should worry about. Am I doing the one thing? That's where we need to check ourselves. Don't get so caught up in all of this stuff. Eschatology, end time stuff, that's glamorous. But the reality is, Jesus didn't tell you to be an apologist about end times. Jesus called you to be a disciple maker so that those that need to know will know. So go find a guy hanging out in a tree. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we can get together, we can study your word, that we can be in this place where we can learn and grow and be challenged by your word. God, you've called us to be your kids, to, to not just unto salvation, but to bring that salvation to many. Lord Jesus, your mission was to seek and to save that which is lost. And then you delegated us to continue in that mission. Lord Jesus, when you come back and you call us into account and you ask the question, what did you do with the opportunities I afforded to you? May we be able to present to you a work that is well done. Your gospel multiplied. Disciples that have come to faith. People that are on the margins. Knowing that they're loved. And that they've met you, Lord Jesus. But in light of all of this, Maranatha, come Lord. Let's close out this time with a worship song. Let's all stand before the Lord. Jesus Christ, we magnify your life for your majesty. We crown you King of Kings. Jesus Christ, we magnify your life for your majesty.
joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.